You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hi, everybody. Liam here. A few years ago, I did an episode about the rise of the KKK in the East Bay. That happened back in the 1920s. When my story came out, President Trump had just taken office. So it seemed like a good time to explore what happens when white supremacists gain power. Looking back at my episode, now that Trump's out of office, some of the historical parallels held up pretty well. Like, for example, the Oakland KKK came into office promising to drain the proverbial swamp, but instead they engaged in the same kind of corruption they'd promised to wipe out. There were indictments, voters turned against them, and fortunately, that particular spasm of costumed extremists didn't last very long. So now, in 2021, at the dawn of a new administration, I thought I'd do a similar episode. And in thinking about what political era might give us some relevant insights into this current moment. The first thing that popped into my mind was the 1930s. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Under a Republican-dominated government, wealth inequality skyrockets. Then the whole economy implodes. Millions lose jobs, homeless camps pop up everywhere, and the future of America as a unified nation is in serious doubt. This, of course, was the Great Depression. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a Democrat, became the new president in 1933, he quickly got to work undoing the damage caused by his predecessors. His administration reigned in Wall Street and regulated banks and created Social Security and lots of other stuff too. But what I'm going to focus on today is the New Deal and its legacy here in the East Bay. The New Deal was a collection of programs like the Works Progress Administration, WPA, and Public Works Administration, PWA, that put millions and millions of people back to work. These programs played a role in building sidewalks, roads, sewers, airports, parks, schools, rec centers, the original Caldecott Tunnel, the Bay Bridge, the Alameda County Courthouse, they also paid artists to create murals and plays. They funded scholars researching music history, for example. They created museum exhibitions and much, much more. Okay, if this sounds like a lot, it was. And don't worry, I'm not going to try to cover it all in an hour. But I'm curious about how the American government was able to pull this off. And if something like it could ever happen again. So for this hour, I'll be talking with Gray Brecken and Harvey Smith, who have both worked for many years on the Living New Deal. And like the New Deal itself, the Living New Deal is a lot of things. But at its core, it's an ever-expanding online archive of New Deal projects. We'll talk about it more in the interviews. Harvey Smith, by the way, also wrote a book called Berkeley and the New Deal. But before we get to Harvey, first a conversation with Living New Deal founder, Gray Brecken. Gray and I met at the Berkeley Rose Garden. 
and then found a nearby picnic table next to a towering outdoor stone fireplace that was partially grown over with bushes and moss. And you're about to find out why that was a perfect spot for this conversation. Welcome to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. I got interested in the New Deal, I should say in one of the agencies of the New Deal when I was an undergraduate here at UC Berkeley in the late 60s, and um, I discovered the Rose Garden. There's a, a bronze plaque in the Rose Garden that identifies it as WPA, and I would come up here like so many people at that time to watch sunsets and to j just bathe in the beauty of the place, and I always wondered, well, why would the federal government go to so much trouble to create something simply because it's beautiful. So there's a great story in that. And it turns out, of course, that it was doing this all over the country. The Berkeley Rose Garden is just one of many that were built at that time by the WPA and other agencies. Oakland has one as well, too. San Jose's got one. They were very popular at that time. But um, aesthetics were extremely important to the new dealers. And... Um, the idea of the New Deal, well, it was, a, it was a radical shift in how Americans viewed their government and the government viewed them because prior to that, the idea was that the, the government, particularly the federal government, should have as little to do in our lives as possible, rugged individualism, etc. But that couldn't be maintained during the crisis of the Great Depression. And what Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, did when he came in was to change that concept because only the federal government could actually do what was necessary to get us out of the Great Depression at that time. And it changed our whole attitude towards government up until about the 1970s and certainly the 80s when there was shift back. Well, let's give a little bit of context to that. You mentioned the Great Depression and what led to that? Why did the stock market plunge? Why was America in a depression that was so deep and so severe in the early 30s? when FDR came into office? Well, the people have been arguing about the cause of the Great Depression practically since it happened. Probably one of the reasons is that people's salaries just hadn't kept up with the increase in production at that time, uh, as well as just rampant speculation, which had sort of blown this gigantic stock bubble at the same time. But people simply couldn't buy the stuff that the factories were producing. So um, that contributed to it. And then the stock market crashed in the fall of 1929. And the cruelty of the Great Depression was that the market kept lurching down so that every time it looked like it was starting to recover, people would put their money into the market and then it would lurch down farther and they would lose everything. Because remember, there's no social safety net at that time. That all comes with the, the New Deal. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to have your life savings in a bank and it went under, as so many banks were doing at the time that Roosevelt came in, then you'd lose everything. So the, the market kept going down. And by 1933, when Roosevelt came into office, it was just terrible. The, um, as he came into office, the banks were going down like dominoes. And uh, a quarter of Americans were out of work 
the, num the proportion of African Americans was much higher than that among youth. It was very high. Eleanor Roosevelt said that she lived in terror, that we were losing an entire generation of young people. They had to be reconnected to society. It's very much like now. You were having all the pathologies of poverty, including they were very concerned about juvenile delinquency, which was a major problem. Crime was on the rise. Everything we're seeing now was happening at that time. In some ways, today is even worse because there were great homeless encampments at that time called Hoovervilles. But I've looked at those photographs and the Hoovervilles were not nearly as bad as the ones we see now sprouting up all over the place. Yeah, and I know that one of the economic dynamics sort of leading into the Great Depression was uh, an economy defined by extreme wealth inequality, which of course is something else that we're seeing uh, right now. And uh, Sorry, was there something you just wanted to jump in and say there? No, no, that was another cause for the Great Depression, of course. There was a tremendous concentration of wealth at the top, but not enough middle class actually to keep the economy going. It was like it was running out of gas. The, the wealthy actually were well, at first they didn't believe it was so bad because just like now they lived in a bubble of privilege and uh, they were totally insulated from what was happening. One of Roosevelt's best friends was a man named Cornelius Vanderbilt III. He left a wonderful memoir called Farewell to Fifth Avenue about how he left his class. And Cornelius actually drove across the country several times picking up hitchhikers so that he could, he was a journalist, so that he could learn what they were experiencing, take the pulse of the country. And he said he would go to his clubs, those very exclusive clubs in New York City and Newport, Rhode Island, and talk to people. And his class didn't believe it was happening until um, Roosevelt was about to come in and they realized, oh, we're on the verge of a revolution or a civil war. And then they began retreating to Newport and um, their country homes, Jekyll Island and various places, and forting up, hoarding food, and stockpiling weapons because they were really afraid that the guillotines were being sharpened for them. I know one of the first major programs to get off the ground was the CCC. Can you explain what that stands for? And uh, let's talk about the impact that the CCC had in the East Bay here. The Civilian Conservation Corps was Roosevelt's own idea, and it was the most popular of all the alphabet soup agencies. It was simple, actually, but incredibly effective. Roosevelt himself, of course, came from inherited wealth. He lived on a large family estate on the Hudson River where he planted over half a million trees. He loved trees, and he understood forest reclamation of ravaged lands. And so um, when he becomes president, he has this idea of putting together wasted human resources and wasted natural resources. Um, we tend to forget just how ravaged North America was at that time um, because of the pillage that had gone on for 150, 200 years of, you know, the, the destruction of the forests, of the soil, of the streams, the pollution, etc. Right, this is before any environmental laws, so it was essentially people would move in and just strip mine and clear cut and just take anything they could out of the land and leave like a just a husk in their wake, right? I mean, just depleted soil, uh, eroded riverbanks, things like that. So 
Roosevelt looks out and sees this devastation and, and how does he set to work fixing that problem and what is the CCC's role in that? Well, the Civilian Conservation Corps was an army, a civilian peacetime army of young men, many of them desperate at the time because they could not find work. Um, many of them were starving, many were illiterate. They were just prone to diseases of despair, which we see around us now. And so they became recruits into this civilian army that was set up with enormous speed from the time that uh, the Congress initiated it at, at Roosevelt's behest in the spring of 1933. Within a month, um, the camps were being established all over the country. Ultimately, there would be over 4,000 camps in remote parts of the United States, um, each one holding 200 men. Each camp would have an infirmary, a mess hall, an educational facility, a library, and then, of course, the barracks where the men would sleep. And the young men were put to work. They were managing our forests. They were doing soil conservation, stream restocking of fish. Um, uh, they were fighting fires. They did just everything. They did, left a great legacy of beautiful stonework that you see in all of our national and state parks, which were immensely expanded at the time. It's great to uh, think about the CCC as solving two problems, the economic problem of mass unemployment mm -hmm. and the environmental problem of all these destroyed landscapes that they, that they helped um, bring back to life by planting trees and, and opening up to public visitation in these parks by making these beautiful bridges and paths and things like that. Uh, you mentioned that these CCC camps were in remote locations, but I know that some of them were not so remote because there was a couple camps right here in the East Bay Hills, right? That's Can you right. tell me a little bit about that? What did they do up there? Well, there were several, um, there were several CCC camps in the East Bay. There was one at uh, Lake Chabot, for example. There was one in Wildcat Canyon. And the one that we're really interested in is there was a small camp in Strawberry Canyon above UC, um, where the botanical, uh, botanical garden is, which they largely created. It's where the parking lot is now. And I think there was one in uh, Oakland too, right where Redwood Regional Park is now, I That's believe. Right. There was okay. one there too. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And um, the one in Wildcat Canyon is largely responsible for Tilden Regional Park, as were the, the CCC themselves because in order to get the voters of the East Bay to pass the bond measure for the regional, which created the regional park district, um, they created, I think it was 12 large um, relief maps, which were used in the campaign to get the bond measure passed at the depths of the Great Depression. It succeeded. And then the boys in Wildcat Canyon went to work largely creating Tilden Regional Park, one of the first of the regional parks. So when you go to Tilden, you look over it. That's not natural. It looks natural, but that is a cultural landscape that was created largely by the labor of the CCC, but also the WPA was working there, and another agency, the Public Works Administration, created the dam which creates uh, Lake Anza, which is the reservoir for watering the vegetation in the park. There's a, there's a myth that the CCC was racially segregated right from the get-go. That's not true, actually. It was, it was at least partially 
uh, integrated. And there's a wonderful book on this by Olin Cole Jr. called The African American Experience um, in the CCC. And it largely is about California. And it appears that Camp Wildcat Canyon, which is where the Tilden Park Visitor Center is now, may have initially been integrated, but halfway through, it was segregated, as were all the camps. And so there was another camp established over by um, San Pablo Dam, the Camp San Pablo, and that was all African-American. And Cole actually got interviews with some of those men. And it's interesting that they said that they weren't comfortable going into downtown Richmond um, or even into Berkeley, that Oakland was a much more welcoming town for them at that time. Because remember, there were very few African Americans in California at that time before the Second World War. And yeah. this is before that time. So we're, we really want to find out more about Camp San Pablo Dam mm. and find out what kind of work they did and were they working in Tilden Park at the same time. And it seems like the unifying quality in what all these agencies were working on is essentially infrastructure, right? They're essentially building parks, roads, facilities, you know, schools. Uh, what else did they do? Is that uh, accurate sort of assessment of the scope of the PWA and the WPA and the CCC and all these organizations? Oh, it just doesn't stop. It's all yeah. around us. You just don't see it. Yeah. You know, it's this invisible, well, I call it a lost civilization that mm -hmm. we're un uncovering. The Living New Deal is uncovering it. And it's really exciting because it, it's all around you, but you don't see it. It includes... Uh, the very things which underlie civilization, which we don't want to think about very much, sewers and water <laughs> supplies and um, all these things that are under the streets that are now decaying and collapsing because we haven't maintained them. So it's our airports. Um, wow. It's city halls. Mm -hmm. um, it's, as you say, roads thousands of miles of roads. And this includes in some of the rural areas of the country that vote very reactionary. The, the Trump parts of the country, they have no idea that they're driving on roads built by the WPA as mm. farm-to-market roads so that the farmers can get their produce and that much of their power is actually provided to them by lines that were strung by the Rural Electrification Agency, another New Deal agency, because the private power companies wouldn't do it. Um, so not, not profitable enough, huh? No, no. Um, our parks, our zoos, and um, it just doesn't stop. It's just everywhere. Um, and so one of the things we want to do is to give those people credit as well as understand that this actually worked and that we abandoned it starting in the 1970s and 80s. And we're really paying the price now because all of this infrastructure which was put in, which in fact undergirded the enormous prosperity of the country after the Second World War. Um, we just decided we weren't going to maintain it anymore because of tax cuts and everything. And now the United States is looking more and more like a third world country because of that. One of the invisible um, legacies of the WPA in, in Berkeley is they planted 16,000 street trees. So when you drive down some of Berkeley's streets and you see them overarched be these large trees, they're 80 years old and they were planted by the WPA 
but of course there's no marker, so you have no idea that these things which give such grace and beauty to the, the streets in Berkeley were done at that time. About 20 years ago, Gray Brecken wrote a book about the development of California called Imperial San Francisco, Urban Power, Earthly Ruin. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. Anyway, Gray's follow-up book was going to be about the New Deal, but he quickly realized that a single book could never really do justice to the scope of that topic. That's when the Living New Deal was born. Now, there's volunteer researchers all over the country working on expanding the Living New Deal's website, which includes information on more than 16,000 New Deal projects. And they also do tours, lectures, exhibitions, all that good stuff. You can check it all out at livingnewdeal.org. But for now, here's Gray Brecken again, talking about how all this got started on a road trip that he took with a photographer. We decided that we would drive around California and look for WPA sites. And I thought, of course, well, all the records would be back in Washington, D.C. because it was all about centralization. That's not true. It was very decentralized. And the records are either poor or they've been destroyed or they were never kept. So this is kind of a mystery that you're trying to solve then. It is. It's the, it, the rediscoveries is like, as I said, a lost civilization that was forgotten and buried in the jungle and we're unearthing it. So um, you're using that as a metaphor, but like literally some of these projects were grown over with trees and bushes and have, I mean, recently been physically unearthed, right, even? Oh, it's all, it's happening all the time. <laughs> we're sitting next to a gigantic stone fireplace here in Coternesis Park, which is almost certainly WPA, but of course there's no marker to identify it. But look at the stonework on that thing. It's just masterful. And so the WPA men, if they weren't, if they weren't experienced in stonework, they would be taught by local men how to do it. And you can see the results all around us, as you can in the Rose Garden. So it's, um, it invigorates people who become involved in our project, because everywhere you go, you suddenly start seeing the landscape in a different way. In your experience, uh, looking out and discovering all these different WPA and CCC and PWA projects in the East Bay, were there any uh, that you came across that really stood out to you that kind of blew your mind or that you're particularly fond of, uh, especially since these are the types of things that theoretically, you know, the listeners of this program can go out and see for themselves? Yes. Um there's so many things, it's difficult to pick anything out. Um, I like small things like, uh, well, the, there's a little amphitheater in um, uh, John Hinkle Park in North Berkeley. And um, Cal Shakespeare used to do their performances there before they got too big and moved over to Orinda. And uh, it's a lovely little amphitheater like so many that were built around the country. And you can see that it was built out of recycled concrete, probably from um, paving that they tore up as they were improving the streets. The same is true at the Berkeley Rose Garden. It's a not mostly made out of stone. It's made from recycled concrete. It was an economy of means. They used what was at hand to reduce the cost of the materials which the city itself had to pay for. But I would say that the most spectacular is Woodminster Amphitheater and Cascade um, up in um, Joaquin Miller Park in, in the Oakland Hills. It is absolutely magnificent and it blows people away when they see it. It's surprising how little known it is and I think that's because of the state of ruin it's been allowed to fall into. What it is is a gigantic, it's about a two or three thousand seat amphitheater which has a lot of summer stock and high school graduations etc. Um, 
But it's not just that, it's Art Deco sculpture at the same time and Oh, and it has wonderful views out over the Bay Area, which was also planned. And then behind the backstage, water wells out at the top and falls in a cascade that's about 150 feet long down to a series of fountains that were originally illuminated at night with a kind of early uh, computer system so that they would go through thousands of different uh, kinds of displays of water and lit at night. In, with, with changing colors. So that this went up at the same time that the Treasure Island World's Fair was going on out in the, the, the bay, which is another um, WPA, PWA project. And so you could see both of these things. It must have been spectacular at the time. If anyone from the Oakland City Council is listening to this show right now, I know that we're in a budget crisis and, uh, you know, it might not be the top priority, but can we please get those lights turned back on and that fountain flowing again at uh, the Cascade at Joaquin Miller Park? Because so many people enjoy that part of Oakland every single day. I mean, the amphitheater has been closed for a while because of the COVID pandemic, but People jog up and down those stairs, they gather at those stairs, there's picnics at the park next to those stairs every day, and it's still, I think, to this day, you know, almost a century later, one of the most beloved places in the in the Oakland Hills. Absolutely. I mean, but it's largely only known for the people in, in the immediate neighborhood. Yeah. I've taken so many people there who are just astonished by it, but also astonished by the by the advanced decay of so much, especially when they learn what it was once like. As you walk up, the Cascade, you'll see that there are, well, wonderful rock work that was built by the WPA men who were working there, but also you can see that there was nighttime illumination um, built right into the rock work. Almost all of it is smashed, none of it's working. The, the fountain and the Cascade itself are seldom working. Everything's overgrown. It really needs to be restored and people put to work because you can see the pride that those men built into the stonework and the rest of it. And I think it would give the people of Oakland who are put to work the same kind of pride to bring it back mm -hmm. and make it a great asset to Oakland. Yeah. Really good stonework is a point of pride by the people who do it. We have accounts from CCC boys um, later on in their lives who would go back to the national parks and state parks and everything to show their families the work that they had done 50, 60 years ago. They'd run their hands along it and say, I did this, point of pride. Um, and those oral histories show how happy the CCC made them. They would often say, this was the happiest period of my life and it set me up for success later on in life because it gave me skills, but it gave me pride and self-esteem, which I'd lost at the time. In a way, this conversation is very inspirational because looking back, we can see what our government is capable of when there is the political will and determination to use public money for public projects that are gonna serve millions of people for generations and generations. We are sitting here in a park that is part of that legacy. I go hiking constantly throughout the East Bay Hills and see things like the Cascade and these trails and these structures that were built during this era. And the reason why this conversation, besides being inspirational, is also very frustrating is because since then, just thinking back through my lifetime, there was a, you know, the Great Recession 10 years ago. 
with the right political will, we could have had a new New Deal. We could have had a new CCC, but instead hundreds of billions of dollars gets shoved into the pockets of the Wall Street bankers who caused these you know, problems in the first place and other, other programs that, that benefit very, relatively few people. And what is the legacy of those bailouts? What is the legacy of those hundreds of billion dollars, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money going to quote unquote restore the economy? It's like there's two ways to deal with these problems and it just seems like for so long we've forgot the lessons of the New Deal which is not only can you use public money to solve problems in the short term, but you can use public money to, to create solutions that are gonna serve the country for generations and generations to come. I'm really glad you brought that up because um, I like to talk about what I call the lost ethical language of New Deal public works. Um, what are these artifacts trying to tell us about mm. a value system that's very different from the one that we've become used to and we've been indoctrinated with? And one of the central concepts of the New Deal is self-esteem. How do you give people self-esteem when they've lost it through no fault of their own? Self-esteem is so important for not just the individual, but for the society itself. Um, when it's lost, the society begins to fall apart, as do the people who have lost it. So you look at these stone walls and these beautiful buildings and the artworks that are in them, and it was a comprehensive plan to create healthier people and a healthier society. And I think it worked. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote in one of her columns that I have a terror that we are lo losing an entire generation and we must give, make these people, these young people, feel that they actually belong to society and have something to add to it. That's something which has almost entirely been lost. So does it give you hope or what do you think when you hear rhetoric in the current political context around things like the Green New Deal or people saying that we need a new New Deal? You know, I was um, pretty pessimistic over the last few years because as I learn more about the New Deal, I see what stark contrast it is to what we've become used to. And I don't just mean the four horrific years of Trump. I mean the neoliberals, liberal administrations that preceded that, including democratic ones too. Um, and so I think that one of the, as an environmentalist, I desperately want to see a new CCC, a federal CCC. But I thought, well, there's very little chance of that happening. But Jerry Brown in his first administration actually created a California Conservation Corps modeled on the original federal CCC. And it already exists. It does its work so well and so unobtrusively that most Californians aren't even aware that it exists. So that could be vastly expanded, as it should be, to manage our forests so that we don't, or so we've got a fighting chance to get these mega blazes that we're seeing now. But with the Biden administration, I'm actually encouraged in a way that I wasn't expecting to be because he's moving so boldly now to confront these multiple crises that we're in. I was not, not expecting that at all. And I think that there is actually now a chance for a new CCC to address the crisis of climate change because he certainly understands it in the way that his predecessors didn't. And he's moving on that. The, the danger, of course, is that the Republicans in the Congress will block him at every turn. 
but I think that there really is a chance now, and as a matter of fact, just a few days ago, he proposed a civilian climate core, which would not only do the kind of work that the original CCC did, but also address the challenges of climate change in the many ways that need to be addressed, including, of course, um, uh, renewable energy, but also so many other things too, and address the problems that the original CCC only partially did, which is racial diversity and gender equity as well too. Um, it has to do that. Just shifting shifting gears back a minute, uh, you were talking about the magnitude of some of these projects, and mm -hmm. I think that the... Some of these New Deal projects reshape the Bay Area's landscape in such profound ways that it's almost unimaginable to to picture the Bay Area if that hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. And one example that I'm thinking of is I do these historical boat tours out on the Bay, and one of the landmarks that we uh, pass by that I talk about is Treasure Island. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, the New Deal wasn't just putting in pathways and building schools. They were actually building entire islands out in the bay. It, as I said, it was, a, it was a time that was unhindered by environmental regulation. So <laughs> they just went ahead and did it. And in many ways, it was, you know, it was a um, very utilitarian approach at that time rather than preservationist. And so uh, in the case of the bay, the WPA filled in an enormous area off of Millbrae for what becomes SFO. Mm. They filled in a lot of land for what becomes the Oakland Airport. And in the middle of the bay, um, just to the side of Yerba Buena Island, there was a shoals there, which probably was a nursery for fish and the birds that fed on it. And they just went ahead and filled it in and created a 400-acre island. Um, the sweetener on that was they were going to have a World's Fair, but the idea was that after the World's Fair was over, it would become San Francisco's Trans-Pacific Airport for the uh, flights that would, the Pan Am flights, that would take off for Asia. And um, so it was a twofer at that time. And they had this wonderful World's Fair in 39 and then held over for 1940. That was all New Deal. So all around the Bay, actually, you see these fill projects that were created at that time. But as I say, it was very utilitarian. We want to have a New Deal museum because mm -hmm. What we're trying to do, as I've said, is to remind people of the ethos of the New Deal, which has been so thoroughly lost with hyper-capitalism, the idea of collectivity, of communal action, and of self-respect. And, and I think, you know, I guess what I really want to convey is that we've forgotten that this ever existed. And that's not accidental. The enemies of the New Deal don't want us to remember it. Um, so. When we talk about the Green New Deal, or anything about the, the New Deal, people say, oh, that's too radical. No, you can't do that. It would never work and everything. What we want to do is to remind people that, oh, it's not only not radical. It, we had it at one time. It worked. Much of our prosperity and our convenience and our enjoyment is based on it today. If only you look around and see it. It's this invisible landscape. And it once was much richer the cultural landscape, for example, the Federal Theater Project, the Federal Writers Project, the Federal Arts Projects, all of this which doesn't exist. We're just talking about the physical things that were left behind. But if the Federal Theater Project, for example, or the Federal Music Project brought live performances 
to tens of millions of people for free or very low cost who had never had that before. And we should do that again to put professional actors and uh, musicians to work. And, and to bring writers up and photographers. All of it. Yeah. All of it. Gray Brecken, it has been such an honor and a privilege to talk to you about the New Deal and the Living New Deal today, your project uh, that's keeping the history of uh, FDR's accomplishments and, and the wonderful legacy that it left here in the East Bay alive. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on East Bay yesterday. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Liam. It's been an honor for me. Thank you so much. Now, before we get to the next interview, I just want to take a minute to say that there are some very negative aspects of FDR's legacy as well. The Federal Housing Administration, for example, largely excluded African-Americans, which set the stage for entrenched housing inequality that we're still dealing with today. And after the Pearl Harbor attack, Roosevelt signed a disastrous executive order that led to the mass incarceration of Japanese-Americans during World War II. I've done entire episodes on both of these topics, so if you want to know more about the history of housing discrimination, or about Fred Korematsu, who stood up to the internment camps, you can find both of those at eastbayyesterday.com. But for now, let's get back to the New Deal. Here's my interview with Harvey Smith, whose book, Berkeley and the New Deal, covers everything from the creation of Aquatic Park to the Berkeley Marina, and even Dorothea Lange, the Berkeley photographer whose images came to define this whole era in the American psyche for decades to come. Stay tuned. All right, I am here with Harvey Smith, the author of Berkeley and the New Deal. And Harvey, first of all, can you tell people where we are and why you wanted to meet here? Yeah, um, we're sitting in, in Civic Center Park and one of the corners of the park I refer to as Berkeley's New Deal Nexus and that's Millie and Alston because on one corner you've got the uh, post office building which is much older than the New Deal, but it has two New Deal pieces of art. You've got Berkeley High School with three buildings. You've got the old Farm Credit Administration building, which is now the Berkeley Civic Center, and then the park itself. And then on the, the fourth corner is the, the YMCA, which actually hosted programs for, for the WPA. So on that one corner here in Berkeley, it represents an array of, of New Deal programs and, and projects. Absolutely, and I think that, that density and variety of projects down here hopefully gives people an idea of just how much the New Deal influenced people's lives, both in terms of the architecture they were seeing the everyday, the art they were seeing, the programs they could participate in. But since you wrote this incredible book that, that gathered so much information about all these New Deal era projects, I wanted to go through some of the specific locations in Berkeley that people might not know were the result of some of these New Deal programs. Like, for example, one project that kind of blew my mind when I learned that it was created by the New Deal, that I guess I just thought it had always been there, is Lake Anza up in Tilden. It's this beautiful jewel of a lake up in the Berkeley Hills. but. 
What was there before it was created, and how did that project come about? I think for a long time that area up there were, were dairy farms. Mm. Um, and it turned out that the whole project of, of Tilden Park uh, employed thousands of men, mostly, to do clearing the trees, eucalyptus trees. It, it created the golf course. It created uh, Lake Anza, which was actually a, a water source for, for the golf course. It created trails, uh, picnic areas all, all through Tilden. The Botanic Garden was further developed. The, the Brazilian Room was built. Um, so all that infrastructure you see there in uh, Tilden Park was a result of, of the New Deal. Wow, you know, I, that brings up so many questions. But first, I just want to reflect on the fact that when I go up into Tilden, I'm walking around, it feels like I'm in nature. It feels like so, you know, you see the contours of the earth and the trees and, and the creeks. But so much of that landscape was essentially man-made or sculpted through these programs. And it just is a good reminder that a lot of the things we see aren't what they first appear to be, that this nature was very intentional. Like you said, it had been dairy farms. And I know for thousands of years before that, uh, Ohlone people had managed the land by, for example, burning the grassland seasonally to create the kind of ecosystem that would help their culture thrive. Yeah, th there were obviously a lot of changes in the landscape. You look at a, another similar project was Golden Gate Park, which was sand dunes. And so we radically changed uh, that landscape. If we did it in the 21st century, we, we'd probably do it differently. So um, we would. Yeah. Well, speaking of the people who worked on the, the park, you mentioned that there was a camp up there, this yeah. uh, CCC camp, hundreds of men, young men, working on building these trails and these structures. And I know this was a program to put people back to work. Of course, this is during the Great Depression. This is both a, an environmental project, but also an economic stimulus project. Were the people that worked in that camp that were sleeping up there, were they from this area or were they like busing people in from all over California? How did that employment process work? Did you get put in a camp that was near your house? In some cases, but in a lot of cases, no. There were uh, young men that, that signed up on the East Coast and they, they ended up in, in Western states, ended up in environments that were far from what they, they were used to. And so people were recruited from all parts of the country. Sometimes they might have ended up somewhat near where they were from, but a lot of times uh, they were taken far from, from their homes. I think people are starting to get a sense probably from our conversation of the variety of different New Deal projects that happened in Berkeley. We're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about art, even some more ephemeral things like writing and plays were produced here through New Deal projects. How was this money allocated in terms of decision making? How did they decide what projects were going to get funded or, and what was going to get prioritized? I'm sure that was a sticky process, but can you summarize? Well, you know, the idea was to stimulate the economy, to put people to work. And so the money was available from Washington. Uh, localities applied. And since we're sitting here in Civic Center Park, the way that this worked was that it was a WPA project, uh, but, but localities was also generally chip in a share. I, I think it varied, but let's say maybe 25%. 
Um, and the whole idea for this, though, was actually a vision that went back many decades before the New Deal. And the idea was to create a civic center here in Berkeley. So on one end of the park, you have the old city hall. It faces a newer building, which is the, the used to be the Farm Credit Administration building built by the New Deal, and is now the Berkeley Civic Center building. On one side, you've, the south side, you've got Berkeley High School, and on the north side, uh, the major building is, is the Veterans Building. So this creation of the park uh, made this civic space that is still well used today. It's the site of the weekly farmer's market, uh, many, many events that have taken place uh, here in the park. The Indigenous Peoples Day celebration happened. Yeah, actually, uh, I got hit by a pipe with by a a, a, a pipe wielding white supremacist uh, bashed me in the side during one of the protests here a couple of years ago. So I've definitely uh, tasted tear gas in this park and had a lot of uh, memorable experiences. But one thing that's kind of striking me about as you're describing all these beautiful public buildings and these beautiful pieces of art facing the park, when you sit in it, you can look around and enjoy it. Is this is in, in some ways, Berkeley's town square. And when I think about so many other cities, the, the center of their public space is very commercialized. You know, you go to like Times Square in New York or something like that, or Union Square in San Francisco, and you look around and it's all essentially advertisements and neon signs and stores. And, you know, we have the farmer's market here on the weekends, but that's not very obtrusive. And that's a pretty, uh, you know, if we're going to have consumerism, that's a pretty good example of, I think, the right way to do it. But it's just so nice to be here in the center of this park and look around and just be reminded of the investment that our government once made in creating these beautiful civic spaces for the public to enjoy before everything had to be branded and commercialized and we entered this neoliberal era that we're still living through now. It's again uh, important I think to, to have civic spaces for for people to realize that functions happen here so we you know we, we have the local government functions on two sides of the park. We have an education function on the other, and then our, our veterans are honored in, in a building on, on another side. Well, I'd like to see that uh, tradition of creating public spaces for people to enjoy to continue. I'm a little bit worried. I just wrote, read an article the other day about how there's a county in Nevada that's basically saying if tech companies want to move there, they can essentially form their own governments and rule their own little fiefdom. So we could be looking at a very dystopian future if things keep moving in that direction. But I don't, I don't want to speculate because this is a history program. Um, one thing I want to ask is you're describing this massive impact that the New Deal had on the East Bay. They're building islands in the middle of the bay. They're reshaping the shoreline, creating these giant civic structures carving up the hills to put in these beautiful parks. What was the public's response back then? When you're looking at contemporary newspaper articles and media coverage, how did people, did people appreciate most of these projects at the time? Was there backlash? Well, you know, there, there was backlash in the New Deal, but it, it mainly came from the corporate sector. And um, I actually have a, an old life magazine that did an interesting thing. It polled people about their opinions on the New Deal. And it basically broke down along class lines. You know, so the the less income you had, the more you appreciated the New Deal. As you went up in, in the income levels, there was less appreciation. And, and obviously, you know, if, if you were down and out, 
and needed help and got a job with, with the WPA, you were deeply appreciative. If, well, if, especially if the choice was either getting a job with the WPA or essentially starvation. Yeah, definitely there was deep appreciation for the employment, for being able to, to get the income. But, but then when you, you read uh, people either in the CCC or the WPA, their personal accounts, they were also very proud of what they created. They, they were proud of the work that they did, and, and they knew it, it would be lasting. Absolutely, absolutely. And I don't want to veer too far away from the local legacy of the New Deal, but I do want to take a step back and just give a little bit of context, because you said these people were riding the rails, there was so much homelessness, and, and people had nowhere to turn. Um, I, I want to remind listeners that before the 1930s, there was essentially no social safety net in this country. During the 30s, under FDR, we created Social Security and all kinds of other sort of social welfare programs that kept people from dying in the streets. And so that was really the birth of the idea that the government has some role in taking care of its citizens in some ways. And uh, obviously there's been a, many decades of backlash to that and this is a debate we're still having. But I just want to kind of remind people that before um, the 1930s, there was essentially not much you could do if there wasn't jobs available because uh, the government wasn't really looking out for you. No, I mean, you were essentially on your own. Um, but you can imagine if the COVID crisis had hit and we had no unemployment insurance, even with all the issues with EDD, eventually that money will, will come to people. Uh, no unemployment insurance, uh, no old age pensions, no, no safety net. Where would people be? There, there would be, I mean, we're feeling desperation now, but, but without those programs that were put in place by the New Deal, it, it would be many, many times worse wow. at this point. That's just terrifying to contemplate. What got you interested in the New Deal? I'm sure you've been researching it for, for many, many years. What sparked your interest? Well, it actually started with the 1989 earthquake. And a lot of my working life has been um, in the East Bay, uh, particularly Oakland, and working with nonprofits. And, and I was quite aware in Oakland that we had these big pockets of unemployment in West Oakland and East Oakland. And I knew that post 89, there had to be a lot of rebuilding. You know, we had a freeway that collapsed, that needed work on the bridge. Uh, a lot of buildings, you know, were- City were, Hall almost had to get torn down. I think it was a FEMA grant that essentially saved Oakland City Hall. Yes. And, and so I, I thought that Something clicked in my mind. I remembered some of my history, and I remember, well, my God, during the 1930s, you know, they, they put people to work. They trained them and put them to work. Couldn't we do something like that now? So I actually did a little legwork, and I, I, I talked to, actually, at the time, Assemblyman Tom Bates. I talked to other people. A few little things came out of that effort, um, but not much. And, and as it turned out, the the hiring rate on uh, the, the the major projects uh, was pretty low for you know for the people in Oakland, um, so it, it didn't turn out the way I had hoped. However, it's, it, it piqued my interest, and I started to think, well, where is all this stuff from that was created in in the 30s? 
And I naively thought I could go to the architecture library at UC Berkeley and there would be a big fat book on the shelf and I'd pull it down and it would all be there. Little did you know you would have to write that book. <laughs> yeah, essentially, essentially. And, and so um, I started to investigate at first in Berkeley and then to Oakland and whenever I traveled in different parts of the country. And I, I started to realize that, that here it was quite a story. Wow. And so how did your real legwork start in terms of finding projects to catalog and sort of centralizing your information? What was the process of tracking things down and what were the biggest obstacles that you came into contact with as you were trying to amass this body of knowledge? Well, uh, pretty soon I started to cover, uh, discover a few plaques because some buildings do have plaques. And I, you know, I just continued my, my research in, in libraries and, and kind of digging around the local historical societies were, were always helpful. Um, and I'd run around with uh, actually a, a camera with film in it, of all things. And then gradually I would discover these incredible projects, you know, like all over the country. And, and they, they were astounding. And, and so finally the, the dots began connected and now what the Living New Deal has is this amazing digital map you know with, with thousands of dots on it that that mark New Deal projects all over the country and actually beyond I mean there's Hawaii and in the Pacific and Puerto Rico and you, know, you name it you know and I know the book came out a couple years ago and you did a series of events and you know shared a lot of information about this with the community here in the East Bay what was people's response? Were they surprised to learn about this legacy? Well, I think one of the comments I got a lot was, my God, you know, I, I've, I've used that park, I've walked by that building all these years, and I never realized it was part of the New Deal. And, and I think what, what I tried to do in my book was to show, well, actually, to, to use Berkeley as a microcosm of what happened all over the country. And there were about 100 cities of Berkeley size in the 1930s. And, and I figure, um, you know, maybe Berkeley got a little bit more, a little bit less than the other cities. But Berkeley was not unusual. It was typical of what happened all over the country. And I, I felt if I could tell Berkeley's story, you know, my hometown, uh, then I was really telling the story of what was happening all over the United States during that period. Wow. And what about misconceptions? Were there things that people told you, oh, I thought this, but your book clarified something for me or, or things of that nature? Mostly it, it's trying to explain the, the breadth and depth of the New Deal because people, many people are familiar with the WPA and the CCC, but then there was the rest of what became known as the alphabet soup. All these myriad New Deal agencies that, that, that covered you know, not only infrastructure projects, but social service projects. Um, and art and culture, as and, you oh, write Absolutely, about. the art and culture w w was huge. And, and that's something that um, we, we think of the United States as exceptional, but it is exceptional, but actually in a negative way, because most other developed Western countries have very developed uh, public art programs, you know, uh, you think of the Film Board of, of Canada or the National Theatre of, of, uh, of, of Great Britain. The BBC. And the BBC, you know, and, and which, you know, our PBS pales by comparison. So one of the ideas, for example, for the WPA Federal Theatre Project 
was that this was going to be the beginnings of a national theater in the United States. No, it never happened because it did. It came under attack, you know, from from the right, and and that project, you know, it never reached that goal. Um, but but we, I think, a lot of times lose sight of the fact that um, it is totally appropriate for the government to support the arts. It enriches our everyday lives. And what would our lives be like if we didn't have these over 1,100 post offices filled with with, with murals? Um, if, if we didn't have the, the public art that the New Deal left behind and actually inspired the, the whole concept of, of uh, percent for art in, in, in public building projects. So it, it's a lot of concepts that came from the New Deal um, are, are with us today and extremely important. You know, and a crazy thing, you know, when you hear from the right, hands off my Social Security, you know, when, when, when people... They, they, they want to disparage government, but at the same time, they don't realize, well, where did that Social Security actually come from? Well, I mean, we could go down this path. I don't think we need to belabor the point, but not to mention our country spends trillions of dollars every decade on massive weapons that often aren't even used, uh, thank goodness. And then the idea of spending a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of it on NPR or PBS infuriates them. So it's really about, uh, you know, ideology and priorities. But anyway, kind of speaking of government investment, with your experience of, of doing this research and living in the world that we live in now, do you think anything like this could ever happen again? Because it seems like there's so many important lessons to learn from the New Deal that our government, especially during times of economic hardship, could replicate. Are you hopeful that we might ever see anything like that again? Well, my hope is that if something positive, and it's difficult to say, but if something positive comes out of, of the four years of Trump, uh, what it is, is it's taken to logical conclusion uh, the neoliberal approach to public policy, or if you want to call it Reaganism, whatever you want to call it, the trickle-down theory. But we've lived with this for 40 years. And the New Deal, and sometimes I, I you know, I kid... And, and, and people say, well, what was the New Deal? And, and a lot of, I used to say, well, think of now and then think of the opposite. That was the New Deal, <laughs> you know? And, and there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. Um, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in 1944, State of the Union Address, um, it, it became known as the Second Bill of Rights or the Economic Bill of Rights speech. And he posited that every person in the United States should be guaranteed uh, employment, education, housing, and health care. And they actually, he made great progress in all those areas, except he was never able to get the health through thing through. And I, I believe that if he would have survived that final term and hadn't died early in, in, in the term, that we wouldn't be talking Obamacare or any of that stuff now, that it would have become, we would have had a national health program established. Wow. So, so if you can imagine those four areas, that if, if people were able to get a job, were, were guaranteed education, and there is a talk again, you know, of really bringing back true, free public education. And look at housing. You know, if you go over the past 40 years, look at the federal housing budget, a decline in every year of the last 40 years. So why are we staring at, at you know, we can, we can see homeless tents across the park right now. We're surrounded by them. Yeah. And, and so the point being is 
why is this? And, you know, and, and if you're younger than 40, you take it as a fact of life that, oh yeah, homeless people have always been on the streets. Well, no, they weren't always on the streets. If our government, starting at, at the federal level, makes efforts and supports truly affordable housing, this problem goes away. But our focus has been more on the, the, the trickle-down. If you enrich the people at the top, it's supposed to trickle down. We, well, we certainly know now, after 40 years, that no trickle-down, whether it be in the economy, whether it be in housing, does not work. Yeah. Well, I know you could talk about the New Deal all day, and I'm so grateful to you for sharing your, your knowledge on this topic. But before we wrap things up, is there anything else, any other big points about the New Deal, especially in terms of its relationship to the East Bay and its legacy here? Any points that you want to make sure we cover today? Well, we've covered a lot of ground, but but I just uh, getting back to your uh, earlier question there, the new yeah the new deal is possible again. I mean, um, it, it's an outlook, it's a direction. FDR famously said, "The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much, it is whether we provide enough for those who have too little." And if you take that quote and turn it on its head, that's what we've had for the past 40 years. But that quote describes, in essence, the core of the New Deal and its public policy direction. So it, it's like picking a direction. You know, we have to set the ship of state on a course that, that goes there, that really looks uh, at equity and equality for everybody in this country, rather than, than favoring uh, the wealthy. The fact that, um, you know, the New Deal was able to accomplish all this, part of it was because Actually, the wealthy paid their fair share of taxes. And we know that these big tech corporations that we're supposed to be so grateful for, um, they offshore their profits. They don't pay their taxes, and they create a lot of social pressures. And we see that here in the Bay Area, where, where because of the, the, the big tech employment boom and uh, the, the uh, bringing of, of many people here, and the focus on, on higher-end real estate, it, it displaces just ordinary people. And we, we need that approach where there's really a level playing field for everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I, you know, I see these high-profile philanthropic projects that get celebrated uh, in local media whenever, you know, a Zuckerberg or someone like that wants to throw $10 million or $100 million at this problem or that problem. And that's all well and fine. I'm not uh, disparaging the act of philanthropy. But if these pay p people paid their fair share of taxes in the first place, we wouldn't be so dependent on this philanthropy and uh, beholden to, to the agenda of what the robber barons essentially want to kick down for the rest of us. Um, Harvey Smith, the author of Berkeley and the New Deal, thank you so much for joining me today on East Bay Yesterday. It's been a real pleasure talking with you here in the beautiful center of downtown Berkeley, California. Thank you, Liam. I enjoyed it. Okay, there's obviously so much more to be said on this topic. But for now, I'm just gonna leave you all with two book recommendations that I think help shed light on this question. Why hasn't there been anything else on the scale of the New Deal since the 1930s? The first book is called Right Out of California, the 1930s and the big business roots of modern conservatism. This book by a UC Davis professor named Catherine Olmsted makes a really strong case for 
how you can locate the origins of today's Republican Party and the backlash to the New Deal right here in California. The second book I want to recommend just came out, and it's called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. This book by Heather McGee is less directly connected to the New Deal, but here's why I think it's relevant. The theme of this book is about how racial resentment has been used by conservatives to turn people against the idea of projects and programs that benefit the general public. So yeah, both those books, totally worth checking out. Oh, and one last thing, I'd like to raise a toast to FDR for ending prohibition in 1933. Cheers, Frankie. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. As always, I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. First and foremost, thank you so much to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. Your donations are what keeps this show alive. If anybody else out there wants to support my ability to keep making new shows, go to eastbayyesterday.com and hit the donate link at the top of the page. If you can't afford the support or you just want to show some extra love, you can spread the word about East Bay Yesterday I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to tag me if you give the show a shout out. That would be awesome. The original music for this episode came from Oakland's very own Justin Lee. Thank you, Justin. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. <laughs>